Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soblick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. This week, we have Ambassador John Cotton Richmond on to discuss human trafficking, forced labor, and God's call on his life to serve the most vulnerable. We had an amazingly rich and deep discussion, and I learned so much from Ambassador Richmond. We're actually breaking this episode up into two parts. It was such a deep and good conversation. We wanted to break it up into two parts. So tune in today for part one, and uh, be sure to come back next week for part two. Ambassador Richmond's career has taken him to the front lines in the global battle against human trafficking. As a partner at Ditton's, the world's largest law firm, he focuses on the intersection between business and human rights. John advises companies on how to keep their supply chains free of forced labor and their workforces free of sex trafficking. Before joining Ditton's, the U.S. Senate unanimously confirmed John He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons from 2018 to 2021. Serving in the nation's highest-ranking position dedicated to human trafficking, John led U.S. foreign policy related to modern slavery and coordinated the U.S. government's response to the crime. Prior to his appointment as ambassador, John served for over a decade as a federal prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit, where he prosecuted numerous victim-centered labor and sex trafficking cases. He also co-founded the Human Trafficking Institute and lived in India for three years pioneering international justice missions slavery work. John has received numerous honors, including being named Prosecutor of the Year and receiving the David Alred Award for Exceptional Contributions to Civil Rights. His work caused the former head of the FBI's human trafficking program to call him, quote, every trafficker's worst nightmare. John received his undergrad degree from the University of Mary Washington and his law degree from Wake Forest University. Ambassador Richmond is a writer and frequent speaker on topics of faith, justice, vocation, and parenting, and is a fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute. He lives outside Washington, D.C. with his lovely and talented wife and their three robust and remarkable children. Mr. Richmond, you have spent the bulk of your career working on justice issues, um, specifically on the issues of anti-trafficking efforts. Before we dive into the details of your career and your work, I want to ask you um, how and why you chose to spend the bulk of your career on these issues. Mm. Well, first of all, Chelsea, I just want to thank you for inviting me on and giving me a chance to engage in this conversation with you. I think these ideas are really important. When when you say I spent the bulk of my career on fighting human trafficking, you're, you're absolutely right. But it might mislead people to think that I had a master plan for my career, and I really didn't. You know, I was a young lawyer. I was interested in how systems could improve, interested in how justice could be done. But I had never really considered human trafficking. In fact, when I was in school, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act had yet to be passed by Congress. We didn't have a UN protocol on trafficking. And when I thought about human trafficking, I thought about history. 
I thought about the transatlantic slave trade. I thought about people in chains and on ships. I didn't realize, and I didn't have an imagination for what is actually happening around the world. And so once I did, once I learned, once I met a few victims, once I met a few traffickers, I felt compelled by the gravity of the issue and the opportunity to make a difference. And so one thing led to another, one job led to another. And I'm really grateful to have gotten to spend a lot of time with some terrific people on various teams doing meaningful work. That's fantastic. One thing I noticed in your bio that I haven't mentioned, uh, you went to Wake Forest Law School, correct? I did. I grew up in Winston-Salem, so North Carolinians uh, know that's great. So how and what was your first introduction to trafficking victims? What did that look like? So I was practice law for about four years, and there's a nonprofit organization called International Justice Mission, and they were just beginning to set up offices around the world, and they needed a lawyer to go to Chennai, India, and begin the work of meeting and getting to know forced labor victims, figuring out how to engage with the government to have the traffickers restrained and prosecuted, but also how to care for survivors of trafficking. My wife and I uh, considered it, and we were so excited about the chance to live in a different country, to get to view the world from a different perspective, to learn another culture, but also to get to do really important work. And so we moved to India, uh, and that was how I got started in this work. Our daughter was 15 months old when, when we left. Wow. And then we, shortly after we arrived, uh, my wife gave birth to our second child, who in was actually India. born in India. Yeah. Wow. So you are a person of faith. How does your faith impact your desire, and your care for vulnerable people? You know, obviously there's lots of people that care about this issue that probably don't approach it from a position of faith. But I feel like the faith that I have animates the work that I get to do. Um, We learn about this idea of love your neighbor. We learn how Jesus defined who our neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We think about this idea of human dignity, that everyone has inherent value. And that's the reason that trafficking is wrong. Trafficking is wrong because everyone was created in the image of God, and they should be free. They should have liberty. They should be available to make their own decisions about when they wake up in the morning, where they work, and who touches their bodies. And to get to live out a meaningful vocation around the ideas of freedom, I think, is buttressed by, supported by, and encouraged by faith. Mm, I love that. So to zoom out, uh, 30,000 kind of view, for those who might not be intimately familiar with the topic of human trafficking, can you give us a scope of the issue kind of maybe looking both domestically at the issue and then globally as well? At its core, trafficking is compelling someone to work or to engage in a commercial sex act. It's an economically motivated crime. Traffickers do this because they want to develop illicit profits. They want to maximize their profits. And the United Nations estimates that the global revenue from trafficking exceeds $150 billion a year. Billion with a B, which means it's more than... Microsoft, Samsung, Exxon, BP, and Apple combined. Trafficking is big business. So it's an economically motivated crime. Uh, We also have an estimate from the International Labor Organization that there are 24.9 million victims in the world today. That's a lot of people. In fact, that's more than the 
12 million estimated people that were trafficked during the 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, like twice as many victims in the world today than were trafficked during the entire transatlantic slave trade. It's also more victims really than ever before in human history. Mm -hmm. And so the scope of the problem, these prevalence estimates really remind us of just how urgent the need is. So are there specific, you know, countries where where trafficking might be higher or specific, you know, places where labor trafficking might be higher than than human trafficking or or sex trafficking? Or or what does that look like? Most of the victims live in the developing world. 93% of victims are not in the developed West. You know, so many people live in India, um, well over a billion people. Um, They have a significant problem with human trafficking. But it really happens everywhere. And it's right here in Washington, D.C., where we're recording this. It's in Topeka, Kansas. It's in California. It's in all the states of the union. And the reality is we need to make sure that we're addressing it everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the overview because, I mean, I was aware of the issue, but I had no idea the enormity of the scope. And that's just utterly heartbreaking. And one of the reasons why I had you on to talk about these issues. And um, I'm excited to to drill down into um, some more of your work and some ways people can get involved. But before we do that, can you talk about why trafficking is categorically different than other, you know, issues the world might face, such as poverty or natural disasters or things like that? It's a really important question because Vulnerable people around the world struggle with so many things, drought, education, access to credit. You mentioned poverty. Uh, There's so many challenges. The big difference with human trafficking is that there is a human adversary. The difference between just suffering and suffering oppression is that there's actually a scoundrel that is taking advantage of you in the vulnerable circumstances. And of course, removing that scoundrel, in this case, removing the trafficker, doesn't fix all the underlying vulnerabilities. It just means someone's free to do that. So the reality is systems and circumstances don't traffic people. The root cause of trafficking is traffickers. You know, a lot of times we think about um, root causes, but often those discussions are really more about root correlations, right? They're Mm -hmm. about the fact that if someone grew up in the foster care system, they're more likely to be trafficked because that's a vulnerability, which is true. I've met several traffickers that tell me that they hang out outside social service centers looking for people who are about to age out of foster care to target them. So they're targeting vulnerabilities. And that's the vulnerability paradox, right? Vulnerabilities don't cause trafficking, but traffickers seek out people who are vulnerable because the traffickers believe that they're easier to control. And so we want to mitigate vulnerabilities. But mitigating vulnerabilities alone would be insufficient to actually address the problem. So you, uh, after your time at uh, the International Justice Mission, you were unanimously confirmed by the Senate, which, congratulations, the U.S. uh, Senate does not do much unanimously. I know, it's one of my mom's favorite facts. (laughs) She's like, the Senate can't agree on anyone except her son. Hey, I mean, she should feel very proud about that. But uh, so you were the ambassador uh, to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. Can you tell us about your, your work as ambassador and thank you for how you serve um, not only the United States, but victims around the world in that post? Well, honestly, the unanimous confirmation says more about the bipartisan support for the issue of trafficking than it does about me. 
we're fortunate that the issue of trafficking occupies some rare political real estate in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. There are champions on both sides of the political aisle that care about this issue and are willing to work together. And so while I served as ambassador, we consistently focused on continuity, focused on the fact that there, um, over the last 21 years, there's been a consistent uh, focus on this issue, regardless of what administration has been in power. And I think that's important. One thing that might help folks understand is the difference between an ambassador at large and an ambassador in residence. Because I think most of us, when we think of an ambassador, we think of someone that goes and represents the United States in another country um, on all the issues that that country faces. The United States has lots of those, but we also have six ambassadors at large. And these are ambassadors not to a specific place, but to everywhere, but not on all issues, instead just on one specific issue. And I'm so grateful that Congress elevated the issue of trafficking to having an ambassador at large um, in 2000. And so as ambassador at large, we lead out on U.S. foreign policy around the globe, engaging governments around the world on how they can do a better job enforcing their domestic trafficking laws and living up to their international treaty obligations regarding trafficking. Uniquely, though, we also have a domestic mandate, which is quite unusual for the State Department. Uh, we support the coordination of the federal interagency's approach to trafficking domestically as well. And so I got to work with my old colleagues at the Department of Justice. That's fun. And Homeland Security and Health and Human Services and Labor and Education. Thinking about how could we make sure we're delivering on our own promises. And then the third priority is thought leadership. How can we engage in the conversation? How can we elevate the ideas? And how can we make sure that people are aware of the problem? So you served in government for a number of years, um, like you said, at the Justice Department and then as ambassador. Um, what is the role of government in countering trafficking? It's critical. This is a fundamentally important role of government from anyone's political perspective. Only governments have the lawful coercive power to restrain traffickers. We need governments to step up and make sure that traffickers cannot harm victims. We also have statutory obligations for governments to support and care for victims who are now survivors after they're separated from their traffickers to make sure that they get the services that they need. And far too often, governments around the world are failing to live up to these promises. And when people see them failing, I think they often think we need to divert and go to another strategy. But the reality is I think we need to call governments to do better. This is an essential function of government. Is there a country during your time as an ambassador that you saw really step up to the plate and take ownership and uh, take initiative on this issue? Absolutely. There are several, but one I'm, I'm really excited about, a country most people probably don't think of very often um, in southern Africa called Namibia. Hmm. And Namibia in 2020 was elevated to a tier one ranking on the U.S. State Department's Trafficking in Persons Report after years of steady, thoughtful growth around how their law is structured, how they're actually implementing their law, how they're protecting survivors and doing it in a victim-centered way. And we were really uh, thrilled. It was the first country in Africa to be on tier one since 2012. And so uh, we'll cheer on uh, the Namibian government for making great strides. So you referenced the TIP report that is released—is it yearly? Okay. It sure is. Can you speak uh, more to that report? I personally have used this in research and rely heavily on a lot of those reports. So can you speak more to that report? 
So I've read the tip report for years. And as a consumer of the tip report each year, I uh, came to rely on it a great deal. It is the gold standard in terms of information about trafficking around the world. Then getting to serve as ambassador and go behind the scenes and actually be a part of the drafting of the tip report and its creation, my respect for the folks at the Department of State went through the roof. Mm. I wish everyone could be a fly on the wall and watch the thoughtful analysis, the tough questions, the disagreements sometimes as people try to work through difficult material, but in such a professional way to produce a high-quality report that can be relied upon. The tip report gives a narrative description of 188 countries and what they're doing to fight trafficking around the 3P paradigm, so around prosecution, protection, and prevention. And then it ranks the countries on one of four tiers, tier one, tier two, the tier two watch list, and then tier three. And if a country isn't performing well and they end up on tier three, sanctions can be imposed and they can lose non-humanitarian foreign assistance from the United States government. We have uh, advocated for sanctions to be applied um, for, for some of the atrocities committed in China, which we will get to um, that issue later in our conversation. But um, I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm a big fan of that, of that resource. So you served um, as ambassador from 2018 to 2021, is that correct? Yep. So what were some of the, the trends in trafficking um, over the past few years? I know that's an extraordinarily broad question, but kind of broad strokes, what were some of the the trends? The first trend I would cite is what I determined to be a prosecution problem. Mm. And there are two sides of the prosecution problem. The first side is that we are not prosecuting traffickers. There's been a 48% decrease in the number of traffickers prosecuted since 2015. 48%. 48%. 48%. And you would think perhaps it's because there's less traffickers out there. Perhaps there's fewer traffickers I to prosecute. I doubt that's it. I doubt that's it. Well, the data suggests it's not because mm-hmm. during that same time period, we've seen a 40% increase in the number of victims governments have identified. So we have victim identification going way up, and we have prosecution of traffickers going way down. So this is a risk-reward calculus for traffickers. Remember, these are economically motivated criminals. And so they see big reward and very little risk of getting caught. I talked to one trafficker just a few weeks ago here in the United States, and he was explaining to me that he never even thought about the possibility of getting arrested when he was trafficking people. And he knew, he told me, that if anyone ever got arrested, it would be the victims and not him, which is the second half of the prosecution problem. While we're not holding traffickers accountable, Far too often, we are actually prosecuting the victims of trafficking for the very things their traffickers compelled them to do. And traffickers often require victims to engage in unlawful conduct, whether it is solicitation or prostitution offenses, or perhaps it's larceny or assault or identity theft. But they lack the intent to commit the crime because in a very real way, it's done under duress. They are being coerced by their trafficker. They cannot actually meet the elements of the crime. But you're more likely to get arrested as a trafficking victim around the world than you are as a trafficker. And I think we need to make good on our promise that we're not going to penalize victims for the crimes that have been committed against them. Absolutely. So a follow-up question to that. So why are we not prosecuting um, traffickers? Is it a lack of resources or, or what is kind of why aren't we prosecuting more? You know, I think there is uh, there are a couple different factors that probably go into mm-hmm. it and different theories. One is that I think a lot of countries are looking at this as a labor violation. 
So they treat it like an administrative offense, Mm -hmm. uh, a slap on the wrist to a company that is trafficking people. And companies just build that into the cost of doing business. Um, And it doesn't trigger victim protections. Mm -hmm. It could be that there is a desire to move away from a criminal justice response, a a lack of confidence in our criminal justice system and wanting to uh, divert cases away from criminal investigations. There are a number of, of possible reasons, but I think that it is important for everyone to know that statistically, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than prosecuted for committing a trafficking offense. Wow, goodness. I don't even know the statistics for being struck by lightning, but I know it's probably pretty small. So when some people think of the issue of trafficking, they might think of the movie Taken and kind of scenarios like that, which I am sure occurs globally, but also uh, technology, I'm sure, plays a part into trafficking. Can you speak to what trafficking might look like in different places and and what the role of technology is in trafficking as well. Taken comes up a lot. Mm. You know, sometimes I like to tell people I have a very particular set of skills like Liam Neeson, but, (laughs) you know, the reality is that um, trafficking normally doesn't look like the movies. Mm -hmm. Most people think only of sex trafficking and don't think about labor trafficking, which is the vast majority Mm -hmm. of trafficking. Most people think it only involves young girls being sex trafficked, when the reality is there's adults being trafficked in domestic servitude or farm work or other industries. We need to move beyond these sort of myths about trafficking and these myths about there's like a grand rescuer that's coming in to save the day, or that even that trafficking victims are excited to be found. Often, um, it's quite disruptive to disturb the status quo of what the trafficker's operation is, and victims may not trust law enforcement. And they may not trust law enforcement for good reason. They may have had some individual bad experiences with law enforcement or maybe culturally where they come from, law enforcement can't be trusted. And so I think we have to move beyond some of the cartoonish or stereotypical myths about trafficking. Mm. So, Mr. Richmond, um, we collectively as an entire world have lived through the COVID-19 pandemic. How has that affected vulnerable populations that might be susceptible to trafficking? It's such a thoughtful question. The global shutdown orders following the COVID-19 pandemic have had a huge impact on trafficking. And I think the most important thing to remember is that traffickers did not shut down. Mm. Traffickers continued to profit off of people. We saw a massive spike in online sex trafficking. Uh, The number of calls to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Federal Human Trafficking Hotline also spiked. We saw some victims being forced to quarantine with their traffickers. We saw the amount of sexual abuse imagery of children increase. We saw, in many ways, survivors not being able to get the trauma care that they needed, whether because we had to have social distancing within shelters and so fewer people could be cared for, or perhaps they didn't have a data plan in their country to attend a trauma support group in person and therefore couldn't do it over Zoom. It is a luxury to get to work from home. Most people around the world can't do that. And we saw um, a lot of resources diverted towards public safety, which may have been the right thing. Um, But what we did see as a decrease in human trafficking investigations, proactive investigations into who is being harmed and in restraining traffickers. We saw court hearings get canceled. We had traffickers released from jail pretrial. 
We had mm-hmm. victims wondering, are they going to come back and torment me again? All understandable. Like, it's a pandemic. Governments aren't quite sure how to respond. They're trying to make good decisions. I, I don't want to um, judge anyone too harshly, but I do think we need to acknowledge the reality that COVID made vulnerable people more vulnerable, and it made more vulnerable people. David Beasley, the head of the World Food Program, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize, estimated that half a billion people were forced into global poverty that weren't already there because of the global shutdown orders. And I think we need to realize that that makes it easier for traffickers to operate. So remember, traffickers want to target vulnerable people because they're easier to control. Now, in a sense, they're fishing in a stocked pond. There's so many more vulnerable people for them to target. And so we need to make sure that as we come out of the pandemic, that we prioritize engagement on this issue. So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, what is encouraging you um, right now about the anti-trafficking movement? You know, I think there's a number of things that encourage me, but I'd love to highlight one that people may not think of, and it's professionalization. Hmm. You know, this movement really started in 2000, and it started with a lot of passion, people who were, um, who cared deeply. But you can't sustain a movement on passion and emotion, on anecdote and story. And I don't diminish those emotions or anecdotes. I've been a part of a bunch of them, and I find them incredibly meaningful. But we do need to professionalize as a movement. We need to go to the next level, and we're doing a couple things around that. One is about our prevalence estimates. The Washington Post fact-checker has given most statistics about trafficking for Pinocchios, and I think for good reason. We haven't been very good at counting. And right now, we're doing a prevalence reduction innovation forum, looking at different methodologies to measure, shifting away from national prevalence estimates to sector-specific and geographically restricted prevalence estimates. So instead of asking how many victims are in Kenya— Ask how many domestic workers are forced to work in Metro Nairobi. Because mm. the strategies a trafficker would use to force a young boy into commercial sex are incredibly different than the way they would yeah. compel someone to work on an agricultural farm. Mm-hmm. Different set of victims, different types of coercion, different traffickers. So one survey instrument is not going to capture all of that. This Prevalence Reduction Innovation Forum um, is going to produce about 30 different prevalent studies, testing out methodologies against each other, figuring out which ones are better for which regions or which sectors. And I think we can get better at counting. And if we can get better at counting prevalence, we could then measure prevalence, engage in our interventions for a number of years, measure again, and see if there's a difference. We'd actually begin to figure out not just what activities are we engaging in, but what impact are we having? And I think that would make an incredible difference. I'd add one more thing, mm-hmm. um, and that is the, um, the elevation of survivors in the conversation. I think we have gotten much smarter about the fact that we've got experts in their own personal experience all around us. And having more survivors in the conversation, having survivor leaders in the conversation, and not there just to repeat their story of trauma. Right? The goal isn't to, for us to be voyeurs and listen to people discuss the worst moments of their life again and again, which could be re-traumatizing yeah. for the survivor, but instead to ask their opinions, to ask them what they think government should do differently, how we could have better programs. What's their opinion on awareness programs or law enforcement? Because they've got ideas. And I'm glad we're getting more and more survivors in the mix and we can learn from them. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. 
If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at erlc.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and The ERLC Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time.